Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitler. And this is episode 44 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday, the 2nd of December. And Leon, we're talking this week to Jerry Tucker of a company called Nice. That's right. Jerry Tucker is the managing director of Nice. It's a business analytics software company. So he offers some very interesting insights and advice on that. Jerry, tell us about Nice. You're in the data business, but tell me first about Nice, where it came from, and what it does. So Nice is as an organisation. Um, we've been around for about for 30 years. This is our 30th year in in operation as a business. Um, we started off really in the sort of in the voice world and, and in particular in the sort of voice recording um, and then expanded through that out of that into um, things like workforce management but today we really classify ourselves as a as an enterprise analytics um, business um, and the reason for that is as organizations are looking to identify how they better interact with their customers and balance I guess the the, the very often it's a you know it's a conf- it's two sides of the same coin how do you drive increased productivity and cost while at the same time driving a better customer experience and one of the ways you you sort of decide how you do that is just to get better visibility of what's happening within your your customers and your customer experience so, so that's really what we do today is, is look to provide a whole a range of solutions that are really focused on helping organizations improve those customer experience having data in and of itself doesn't actually help you achieve a whole lot it's how you utilize that data and how you get access to the insights that that data can provide and i think that's where the analytics comes in but again that's only part of the equation the the next part then is how do you actually operationalize those insights so how do you you know if it says, well, you've got a problem over here, or if you improve that over there, something else is going to happen. You've got to operationalize that. And then what you've got to do, I think the third element of it, of that life cycle, is, is then having the ability to continually optimize. Because I think a lot of the time in today's world, it's really about, you know, the term is incremental, imp- con- continuous incremental improvement rather than a big bang of, hey, let's let's improve that by 30%. Very often it's it's about, well, let's improve by 1% or 2%. Let's improve everything by 1% or 2%. And that, that adds up in a, in, a, in a much quicker way. And analytics is becoming extremely important because that's the piece that gives the visibility. But how much companies get out of all that data becomes a question, doesn't it? It's the quality of the people. It's also using the tools and, and trying to use a set of tools that broadens out the access to the data. You know, when, you, when you're talking to, to people out in the marketplace, and we've seen over the last sort of five to five, probably seven years, organizations have invested a lot in big data which is really allowing them to pull together all of this data. Then they'll overlay that with um, usually a group of data scientists, um, with a group of sci- data scientists or, and, and BAs. Mm. Um, and, and they sort of, they start, they're the ones that extract, you know, the, the, the insights, the knowledge, I guess, out of the data. Um, but what we're seeing today is, is organization, organizations looking to continue that ability to access the insights, but but broaden the access beyond those data scientists and look to achieve two key things in doing that. One is by um, giving people within the business, so the business owners, better access and visibility to what they with the data and, and really make it almost self-service for them. I think the other element of it is by doing that, they're looking to accelerate the time you know, or, or collapse the time between somebody saying, I'd like to understand what's happening here to 
now I understand it, I want to actually make a change. You know, and I've seen some occasions where that, that gap can be several months um, because of the way they're structured. So, and if you, if you think about, you know, a customer experience, there's one of, you know, if you think about customer experience today in our world today, um, the, the, you know, it's become a much more complex environment because, you know, 15 years ago, it was the retail store and the contact center and maybe a bit a bit, a bit on the website. And they were probably your three main channels. Um, today, I mean, we did some research with um, BCG um, and recently, and it's showing that on average, a consumer or a customer will deal with an organization across 5.6 channels. Um, and, you know, when, when I heard that first, I was like, mm, what's the 5.6 channels? Well, that phone, IVR, so it's contact center, IVR, email, chat, retail, Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. And before you know it, you, you're actually getting up towards, you know, that, that seven, five, six, seven, eight different channels. And the customers are expecting... They're expecting the same experience or a better experience in each of those channels versus what they would get in those traditional channels. So that's one element of the complexity. I think the other element of the complexity is that customers themselves, their expectations of, of what they want out of an interaction and out of a, an, an interaction with a customer is very, very different. You know, it's becoming more complex because people can go on the website and, and you know, go online and find out a lot of information, basic information, what's the price, what's the product capable of doing, etc. It's when they have more complex queries about, you know, what's your warranty look like, or how do I claim this, or how do I claim that, that they actually want to get in touch with the organization. And, and I think I've seen some research, and I can't remember where it was, but it, that showed that, you know, if, if you take just the sales side of the equation, as well as the service side, that it, on average, a customer, by the time they make contact with the organization that they are potentially looking to buy something from, they're 70% of the way through the sales cycle, you know, and, and that's, that's moved dramatically from where it was. And so, so organizations have all of this data, they have all of this, all of this information, but how do, you, how do you get access to that? I think the other side of it as well is that um, whilst digital channels are very, very important, a lot of those more, you know, the more complex inquiries are still ending up at the at, at an individual level, like ending up with a contact center agent or somebody in a retail or a service center, for example. What's what's challenging for organizations is is you've got to skill those people up to deal with a more complex set of inquiries and questions and a customer that's more educated than they were a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. And so that's the other side of the equation. Again, it's the customer expectation and your ability to, you know, as an organization to actually meet that expectation. But then at the same time, you've got retailers using things like iBeacons and collecting data. So you've got a self-service element in there as well, I think, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the ultimate is that you've got, you know, for most organizations today, is you've got more and more self-service capability within the organization um, because it's it's a lower cost. You know, the cost to serve a, um, a customer through a, a self-service, whether it's a you know, in a, even in a retail environment, whether it's through a kiosk style and um, style setup or whether it's online, is so significantly lower than than you know having to deal with a, a, a 
somebody in a, in a service center, you know, on a high street or, um, or somebody in a contact center. But, but, but that also means that you've got to make sure that those digital channels are able to deliver the same or close to the same style of, and, um, of, of experience that the customer would get, you know, by walking into that retail store or that service center on the high street. Social media has got a pretty big profile around the world these days and a lot of stores placed in it as a, as a marketing tool. How do you see that sort of fitting with this kind of big data stuff? Well, I think social media, I guess, from a, from a, you know, if you look at it, is another channel. It's a way of communicating with, um, with your customers is one way. It's also a way of seeing what your customers are saying about you. Um, and I think that latter piece really plays into the what we would call the voice of the customer um, component. And that's that's where customers have, you know, your customers, you're an organization and your customers, you know, you, you want to understand what they are saying about you. And it, there's multiple elements to that. There's after they've had an interaction with you, you might survey them so you can find out, you know, what how it went. Um, and obviously, if it wasn't a good experience, you've got to deal with that. I think the other pe- the other part of it is that you know you want to understand a little bit more about the interactions itself. And I think the other thing is that with social media, it becomes much much more um, it, it becomes much easier for that consumer to either voice a positive opinion or voice a negative opinion about the experience that they've had with you as an organization. And I think that's whole. And the immediacy of that and the impact of that is is quite can be quite quite significant. And so the like if you look at customer experience today, you know, you know what's it, it, it's an area that most organizations, most you know B two C based organizations in particular, are saying that that's going to be their key differentiator. That is how they are going. It's not about price. It's not about you know this. Uh, we have this feature and that feature. It's, be about customer experience. And that's coming from within the executive level down into the business. It's trying to understand, trying to understand what is it that's working and what is it that's not working. If you're an organization that is investing heavily in your digital channels, so those what you know, unassisted channels is another term for it. Um, you're investing heavily in that, but what's but what's occurring is that your costs in your in your traditional sort of assisted channels, a high cost, high cost is increasing because more people are go- they're going online, they're doing using the digital self-service channels, and they're finding it's just not working for them. Well, they're going to do one of two things: they're either going to drop out completely and go look somewhere else, or they're going to go into your high cost channels. And either way, it's a loss to that organization. And so, but you've got to you've got to have visibility of why are those digital channels working and not working? You know, some might be, some might not be, some elements elements of them are working, some elements aren't. And you've got to be able to do that in pretty much real time if you're to be able to have an impact on, the, on again, coming back to what I said earlier on about not just having the insight, but it being able to operationalize it and then track it and then optimize that. So finally, what we've talked about is, is fascinating. And it seems to me that a company such as Nice becomes like a guide dog, doesn't it? I mean, you're the guys that that can tell people this is the way you go and that you can lead a customer or you can lead a company. Would that be a, a fair summation of what NICE is about? Yeah, I think we're really, I, I think it is. That's not a bad analogy. I think it's about you know, using analytics to to enable an organization to be agile and respond to their, their customers' changing needs. Um, 
and as you say, guide them through that process um, as quickly as possible. And I think that that's another element is really it's and that's why agility is important, because most markets, as you say, whether it's a government you know, service provider, or it's a, you know, it's a retailer, or it's a bank or a telco, though, you know, in today's world, those markets and their customers requirements change very, very quickly. And it's how do you get how do you get visibility of that? And then how do you respond to that in a really agile way? Or even predict what might be happening? Absolutely. I think the, the next, the, you know, one of the areas that we do look to work with organizations is if you've got that analytics and those insights, then you know, you can you can use the next level, which is predictive analytics, to identify to potentially guess what's the next thing that's going to be. So, you know, if you're dealing with a customer, for example, on a contact center, and they've called in because they've got a, a you know, they're trying to enable something, or they've bought a new phone and they're trying to enable something on it, right? What you want to be able to do is not just service that particular problem that they've called in, but also anticipate, if you can, what the next problem might be and deal with that on the same call. And so, one, you're giving the customer a much better experience, and two, they're not having to come back in again and, you know, and you're having to do, you know, effectively do with two problems, you're actually dealing with one. So that predictive analytics capability is extremely important. And I think that's where a lot of the market is, is going to end up. And it's definitely an area that we're investing very heavily in and seeing a lot of, lot of you know, interest in customers here in Australia. Jerry Tucker, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. Now, Nicholas Gruen, Leon. Nicholas Gruen's got some very interesting suggestions on how to handle our democracy in the post-Trump era. So it's basically on the modelling of a famous economist, Joseph Schumpeter. And uh, it's really interesting. And he talks about Athenian-style councils. And giving ordinary people a voice. And it's interesting because generally, if you read about, you know, read the international press, look around at the comment of qualified people, democracy in a way is under severe threat in the wake of the Trump election. That's right. Well, in the wake of Trump, in the wake of Brexit. And, and even here in Australia. That's right. If you look at the composition, the fragmentation of representation that's, that's going right. on. Let's listen to Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, uh, with all the changes happening politically with Brexit and Donald Trump, you have a model for going to Athenian-style citizens' councils as an answer. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I think we're in a lot of trouble. And I think that uh, just as we, just as Australia led the form with uh, the Hawke-Keating government, we led the world in the current madness of what I call Vox Pop democracy. So the 2013 parliament, what was its most singular achievement? Its most singular achievement was to replace a regime of carbon pricing, which had arrived through about a decade of painful debate and compromise with a cockamamie scheme for subsidising polluters to pollute less. If the federal government if the federal parliament hadn't repealed the carbon price, the budget deficit would be about a third better than it is now, perhaps a little more than that, actually. And carbon pricing would deliver over $10 billion worth of revenue to the budget each year. Now, when you ask yourself the question, how do we get to this state? You have to come to terms with the fact 
that the parliament that voted against the carbon price consisted of, I would say, I mean, I'd be very confident that 75% of the people in parliament thought that was a bad idea, thought that was bad for Australia, bad for the world, just bad policy. And then you have to ask, well, why did they do it? And they did it because of the imperatives of what I call vox pop democracy, and that's democracy, electoral democracy, as it is practiced with today's media, uh, focused as it is on sensation, the nursing of resentments. Anyway, you know what I mean. We, we, we know all about it. And it's getting more and more toxic. Donald Trump, you know, I'm not uh, I, I don't think Donald Trump's a kind of dumb guy. I think he's probably quite a smart fellow. But he's, you know, he's extremely erratic, has demolished the idea that the politics is about anything resembling the truth that you find in encyclopedias. Um, it's about the truth that you feel in your gut, to quote, um, to quote Stephen Colbert. And in fact, another rather revealing fact is that the I think it's true that Donald Trump was regarded by American voters as more truthful than Hillary. Now, in a sense, they were right, told a lot more lies about facts, but he was much less manipulative. He was much less on message. He would frequently depart from the playbook of how you manipulate people. Uh, he was just being himself. And in that sense, he was more honest. So, So we've got a a huge problem. And at this point, it's worth making making the point that there are two ways of representing the people. One is by election and the other is, uh, and, and elections were quite rare in ancient Athens and a much more common way of representing the people was to choose people by lot, simply collect groups of ordinary people chosen at random from the population. And if that sounds weird, of course, we have a great deal of respect for that in our courts, in the form of juries, and there is a lot of evidence that the kind of democracy that delivers uh, has many, many qualities which are almost exactly the qualities you would be looking for if you're trying to heal the madness that we are that we find ourselves in the in the grip of. So, what's the model you're proposing? I think it's important to sort of distinguish two sides of this. I'll give you a kind of, if you like, a utopian idea, which is a model of the Australian Constitution, without suggesting to you that uh, there's any people in positions of great power asking me how they should refashion Australia's Constitution. So this is just a thought experiment. And then we can talk about, are there practical measures? We can, Firstly, we can talk about, would that be a good idea? And secondly, we can talk about, are there practical measures that, that we might, uh, that might get us closer to that. So I would argue that um, we should leave the lower house uh, arrangements alone for the time being. They would be electoral democracy through the House of Representatives, everything as we know it. I don't even mind leaving the Senate there. In some ways, it does a good job, but there should be another chamber. Now, that chamber could replace the Senate or could be an additional chamber. That chamber would be 
a chamber of people who had been chosen at random, but on a broadly representative basis, that is the right number of people from different states, the right number of people of different ages, the right number of people of different genders, and and um, the right number of people from different regions and so on, uh, you know, from the city and from the country and so on. So let's say we have 199 of those, 299 of those. I would then, we send them all letters, you'd have to send more than 399 because some 299 or 199 because some people would say uh, we don't want to do it. Ideally, I'd want to pay those people and they become parliamentarians. Effectively, they become, they populate a people's chamber and they vote on the parliamentary notice paper. I would give them a delaying power like the House of Lords has. They can't block, they couldn't block, a simple majority of that chamber couldn't block legislation. But if they had a delaying power, of one year, then it gives the other house or houses and the executive, the government, that is, an incentive to take them seriously and try and take them into their confidence and persuade them that what they want to do is a good thing. But but let's say that we got a super majority of that chamber, super majority, let's say it's 60% of the people in that chamber. That's telling you, and, and let's say that they disagree with another house, which is what I'm saying would absolutely have happened if we had if the carbon pricing fiasco had gone to a citizens chamber there's a lot of evidence that when you take people through a deliberative process not just poke a microphone in their face but take people through a deliberative process that the number of people who support things like carbon pricing grows quite appreciably. Uh, About 57% of people supported carbon pricing when it was introduced, somewhat less than that once the Fox Pop mechanisms that had their chance to get their hook. What's that telling us? It's telling us that the parties, the political parties, our, our representative democratic institutions are coming up with, they're trying to pull a swifty, if you like, they're coming up with, they want to do things that a, that a very substantial majority of ordinary Australians, when they think about it, don't think is a good idea. And in that situation, I would, the very first power I would give the that chamber is a quite a sneaky power, I think, I'm rather proud of it, it's kind of clever, is I would give them the power to impose on the the lower house or houses, a secret ballot. Uh, so then the members of parliament who are actually voting against their conscience get a chance to vote with their conscience undetected. One would hope would break some deadlocks if they were fairly close. And uh, we have evidence of that also. In 1974, uh, the secret ballot was held in the Senate to appoint the president and the president uh, who was proposed by the party with more votes managed to lose that election because people didn't like him and he and the other candidate won. Uh, and if that doesn't work, then we move into some kind of process for uh, a joint sitting or some way of breaking the deadlock, which currently is proposed under Section 57 of the Constitution. So, so that's my that's how I'd like to see our parliament work. So in a sense, it's kind of almost based on what uh, Joseph Schumpeter talked about. Joseph Schumpeter's understanding of democracy is similar to the founding fathers of the United States and, in fact, Aristotle, because the idea was that 
uh, choosing by lot was democratic and choosing by election was aristocratic. In other words, you wouldn't win an election unless you were well thought of by the community and were well resourced by the community. So that's why Aristotle said that an election is more aristocratic than choosing by sortition or choosing at random. Now, what Schumpeter argued was that democracy should see itself not as really full democracy with the people deciding, but that democracy should be seen as factions of the elite competing for the consent of the governed. And I kind of agree with him. That's why representative or electoral democracy worked until the elite decided to more or less destroy themselves. So if you think of, I was in England three weeks ago, two two or three weeks ago, when the High Court ruled that uh, Theresa May, the Prime Minister, was unable to exercise Article 50 of the EU Treaty to exit the EU and that Parliament would have to exercise that power. You would have thought that that's what the elite, that's what most people want. They want judges to determine these things because that's called the rule of law rather than the rule of the mob. Well, the Daily Mail's headline that day was that these three judges were enemies of the people, a term that was used in Stalin's Russia. And and so if elites will not do what elites are supposed to do, which is to, along with their privileges and their wealth, hold the world together according to the rule of law. If the elites want to join the mob, then this is our last shot in the locker to actually go with real democracy because what Aristotle might have called aristocratic democracy is is sort of tunneling towards mob rule. And that's what you can see in the United States with Breibart News and a large number of the community uh, consuming fake news. It's a really extraordinary state of affairs. But that's that's the situation that we've got ourselves into. Now, all this sounds like fancy theorizing by me, but I think there is something we can do. If we can raise the money with, with you know, crowdfunding and some wealthy individuals to simply put on a wildcat citizens chamber, if we wanted to l- limit the cost of that, we might do it before, you know, in, in, the, in the lead up to the next election. But ideally, we could actually institute this process ourselves and we could have a respected uh, respected politicians or ex-politicians from the left and the right supervising a process and putting their stamp on it and saying i certify that these are this is a random and representative sample of australians in this citizens chamber and we fund that so people can go about their ordinary lives and maybe 10 time 10 weekends a year fly somewhere for a, for a weekend or a long weekend or a week and deliberate on the parliamentary notice paper and other issues that they wish to deliberate on. Now, what would that do? It would, I think, have a a pretty powerful effect on politics as usual because it would highlight ways in which politicians were pushing sectoral issues and and, and stopping us from solving problems like uh, like the overcriminalization of drugs and, and a whole range of other areas. Tax reform is possibly an example where all these, all these no-go zones, it might show us, it might open up areas of consensus, might show us ways of 
positive ways of going and also block bad things that people are doing so that it can have a an important direct impact on politics as usual at the same time as naturalizing these kinds of ideas so that people can say actually this is the sort of thing that we should do political parties could could appoint groups of citizens to advise them lots of things that could be done to start naturalizing these ideas and get ourselves out of this terrible mess that we're in before we manage to blow ourselves up or whatever else is going to happen out of Washington. Nicholas Gruen, always delightful talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. I don't know that it's ever going to happen, Leon, but uh, it's a very interesting discussion. It is. It certainly is. Whether it gets up or not is another question, but uh, it's something worth thinking about. Anyway, now the news, Leon. What have we got? Well, Gary, the OECD in its twice-yearly economic outlook says global growth will pick up faster than previously expected in the coming months as the Trump administration's planned tax cuts and public spending fire up the US economy. The OECD estimated global growth would accelerate from 2.9% this year to 3.3% in 2017 and 3.6% in 2018. And the Paris-based organisation was slightly more optimistic about the US outlook, with a forecast for growth next year of 2.3%. That's up from 2.1% in its last set of estimates dating from September. And US growth would pick up further in 2018 to reach 3%. That's the highest rate since 2005, as the incoming Trump administration cuts taxes on businesses and households and embarks on an infrastructure investment program. Let's just see what's planned and whether it actually comes off. Yeah. The other interesting part was the OECD has also signalled that we need interest rate increases next year in Australia to avoid a housing market hit to the economy. In its latest global economic outlook, the Paris-based think tank points to the issue of low interest rate environment creating rising housing prices as well as distortions to the housing and financial markets and the rest of the economy. And the OECD also has a shot at the Turnbull government for not adhering to its recommendations to take bold steps on tax reforms by raising the goods and services tax and introducing land tax. The OECD also warns of potential economic shocks ahead, particularly those linked to the Chinese economy. It says non resource investment may may remain lacklustre, dampening growth prospects. Also, the housing market remains a risk, and it challenges the Turnbull government's focus on reining in the budget, and it points out that there's scope for what it calls accelerated infrastructure development and investment in skills, an area where Australia falls short of top-performing countries. And it recommends investments in telecommunications, roads, and public transport system. This actually flies in the face of the government focus now aimed at stopping the ratings agency from cutting uh, Australia's AAA credit rate. Yeah, and that, that's still a risk, isn't it? It's still there, but but it's very interesting insights from the OECD and also about interest rate hikes next year. S&P Global Ratings has done an assessment of the Asia-Pacific economy in the Trump era and it says higher interest rates and volatile exchange rates are the top credit risks for the Asia-Pacific in 2017. In its latest report, Asia-Pacific Credit Outlook 2017, Trump Growth and Risk, the ratings agency says uncertainty about President-elect Donald Trump's policy are dominating financial markets. It says as while the US could increase demand for metals and mining output with Trump's infrastructure plans, uncertainty about trade protection policies could restrict trade growth in this area. Rising US stock markets, a sell-off in global debt markets and the significant strengthening of the US dollar show that markets are already testing a scenario that incorporates key features of Trump's campaign. Fiscal stimulus through increased infrastructure spending and tax cuts, rising inflation and a tightening monetary policy, both of which may lead to higher interest rates. Now, Gary, the iron ore price has topped 
US $80 a tonne for the first time since 2014, according to the Metals Bulletin. Iron ore for delivery to Chinese Qingdao port rose uh, 1.5%, or $1.22, to US $8.80.83. And this comes after Chinese seal futures soared 6%, reaching their highest level in 31 months, with traders placing bets on Chinese steel prices rising. Now, the rise in iron ore coincides with Beijing releasing a five-year planning document calling for the closure of 100 to 150 million tonnes of steel capacity through to the end of the decade, and that would increase the profitability of the remaining steel producers and tackle pollution. Authorities are also planning on the consolidation of the steel industry, and they're targeting a 60% market share for the top 10 steelmakers, and that, of course, will result in higher prices for steel, iron ore, and coal. All this, of course, Gary, coincides with the right price of steelmaking raw material up 84% following the near-decades low 12 months ago. It's also seen the price of zinc, uses coating on iron, iron and steel to protect against corrosion, soaring to a nine-year high on the London's Metals Exchange and a six-year peak in Shanghai. And all this is part of the rally in metals with the Bloomberg Industrial Metals sub-index posting the biggest five-day gain since 2011. So things are looking very buoyant. Now, to politics and the Senate has stymied the government's plans to get this week compromised backpack attacks through Parliament. The government was put on the back foot when the Greens and the crossbenchers, including Darren Hinch, Jackie Lambie and David Lanhelm, supported a Labor, Labor amendment to lower the back attack attack from 32.5% to 10.5%. And the Senate therefore rejected the compromised 15% proposal the government had reached this week. And that was a surprise for the government, which thought it had the numbers after being forced to lower its proposed rate to 15% proposed by One Nation on Monday. And as a result, the bill is being sent back to the House of Reps. Finance Minister Matthias Cormann said the government could use it, will use its numbers in the lower house to reject the amendment. And that means it won't get through Parliament. And this is the final sitting week. And today is the last day of Parliament. And the apples and oranges are hanging on the tree. That's right. And it's very bad news for farmers. The farmers are really, really upset about this. At the same time, the bill re-establishing the Australian Building Construction Commission, which triggered the double dissolution election, has passed the Senate. Senate voted 36 votes to 33 to pass a bill. And the passage of the bill means the government has secured its complete package of industrial relations reforms coming one week after the Senate passed a bill establishing a registered organisations commission. And the ABC seal bill, however, only got through after plenty of negotiation and brinkmanship. And of course, the, the, the elephant in the room is that a lot of the provisions don't come into force till 2018. And if Labor wins them, you can expect to see Bill, uh, Bill Shorten reversing the whole damn thing. Well, let's just take a look at that space. I just think the prospects aren't too good. No, not with the way the polls are going. Now, new home sales have fallen to a two-year low, according to figures from the Australian Housing Association. The HIA's monthly survey of Australia's largest home builders showed new home sales falling 8.5% in October, the lowest since July 2000. 14, and approvals for the construction of new homes have fallen 12.6% to 16,279 dwellings. And they're now at their lowest level in two years. And that came after the 9.3% drop in September that was far larger than economists had estimated. And that's not good news for the building industry. No, I think construction industry, home building certainly is in uh, in some problem. I mean, particularly in Melbourne, where you've got tower blocks built in CBD with tiny apartments. And many of them are empty, and that's really dangerous. Now, uh, met cash profit after tax has fallen 4.7% to 82.8 million, and reported net profit plunged 39% 
to 74.9 million from 122 million in the year earlier period. And that number included earnings from Metcash's auto businesses sold last year. And the drop of earnings comes in the face of food price deflation and increased promotional activity to counter Aldi expanding into South Australia and Western Australia. Now, Metcash hardware earnings, however, rose 7.8% to 12.5 million, with sales rising 9.6% to 581.6 million. And that was boosted by one month's trading from the home timber and hardware business acquired from Woolworths for $165 million in September. And the home timber and hardware business has actually positioned Metcash as the second largest player in the market, taking on Bunnings. Liquor sales were up 4.6% to $27.1 million, with stronger sales and cost sales offsetting score closures. However, supermarket earnings fell $2 million or 2.2% to $88.8 million, with wholesale sales slipping 1% to $33.7 billion or 4% excluding tobacco. IGA store closures and the sale of former wholesale customer Superbarn to Coles accounted for half the decline with food price depletion of 1.8% accounting for the other half. And Metcash cost savings and gains at IGA stores were offset by promotional activity countering old dudes' expansion to South Australia and Western Australia. But uh, Metcash said it was really well positioned now for growth and uh, its share price went up as a result. Well, I hope they survive because uh, it's not exactly a... a plain sailing market is dominated by the two big ones no i think i think it'd be i think that's important now chinese global e-commerce giant alibaba has moved into australia launching the local arm of its cloud computing business alibaba which has opened a new data center in sydney is adding australia to germany japan u.s east and west coast dubai singapore hong kong and of course china and ethan Yu, alibaba group's vice president told the media that the data center would be good for australian businesses looking to compete globally with markets in china the u.s and the middle east and that would help australian cloud customers set up in china using alibaba's other arms including data storage big data processing middleware and alipay alibaba also has an office in melbourne now its business strategy is establishing a channel partner program and it has announced that accenture will be its first global partner and integrator and with plans to commence um, acp or alibaba certified professional training in australia shortly the company expects will attract a large developer market but of course it will be competing with aws and microsoft azure but uh you was very confident. And the interesting thing is that Alibaba started out as an online marketplace, but now it's into big data and all sorts of stuff. Now, the competition watchdog has blocked three of the big four banks from collectively bargaining with Apple over use of its electronic payment system. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission issued a draft determination refusing to authorise the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Westpac, National Australia Bank, and the Bendigo and Adelaide Bank from collectively bargaining with and boycotting Apple on Apple Pay. And the banks were seeking access to the near-field communication controller and iPhones, enabling the banks to offer their own integrated digital wallet to iPhone customers in competition with Apple's digital wallet without using Apple Pay. And I can't see why those other banks, ANZ made a deal with Apple a couple of years back, wasn't yeah. it? Why don't the others just go and negotiate? I just think they have to negotiate individually. Yeah. They're being too clever by half. Negotiating group actually break breaches Australia's anti-cartel laws. That's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we're talking to Gerda Gemser, RMIT and Ingo Carpen, and uh, they have written a book on strategic design. And not about the shape of a building, but about the shape of a, and the culture of companies. It'll be fascinating. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZZ or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.